Anyone who knows the South today knows that it is a changing place. The North Carolina I remember from my childhood is not the North Carolina I call home today. Much of this is a good thing. Some of it is not. It is always easier for us to look back on the past and imagine it is somewhere better. This is the basis of nostalgia and the basis of much of folklore work, which hinges on the preservation of the solely traditional. As a folklorist, I spend a lot of time thinking about what traditions ought to be preserved, of what is worthy of carrying into the future. I'm most interested in looking forward and thinking about where we go from here. And as a writer, I'm most interested in myth-making, how the stories we tell impact how we see ourselves. We are in a moment in the South where so many of our myths have crumbled, many for good reason. But what we are not seeming to grapple with collectively is the fact that people need myths and stories to survive. They need something to believe in. And when the stories one has long told themselves about their relationship to home, to place, and to identity crumble, well, many people will cling to the first new story they can find. I see our essential work at Good Folk as a collective project to write new myths and stories into place. Stories that are reflective of who we are, of what this place looks like, and of where we go, together. It must be a communal project, and it must hinge on the act of paying careful attention to the world around us, of seeing it up close. It requires recognizing all the changing and shifting stories around place, especially this one, and being open to the writing of a new story. Artists and writers are inherent myth-makers, but these days, they are also documentarians, letting the world around them infuse itself into their work. This dual role of myth-maker and documentarian, perhaps best described as a citizen artist, is one of the key themes of this project, and one of the key themes that will underline the third season of this podcast, which I am thrilled to welcome you to today in a conversation with writer Sarah Johnson Allen about place, myth, identity, culture, home, and how we grapple with the tenacity and nebulous nature of it all. Sarah Johnson Allen was raised mostly in North Carolina. Down Here We Come Up, winner of the Big Moose Prize from Black Lawrence Press, is her debut novel, released this month, and which I wholeheartedly recommend. A recipient of the Marianne Russo Award for Emerging Writers by the Key West Literary Seminar, the Stockholm Writers Festival First Pages Prize, an artistic grant from the Elizabeth George Foundation and McDowell Fellowships, her work has appeared in Pink Magazine, Smoke Long Quarterly, and Wreck and Review, among others. When she is not teaching or shuttling her three kids around, Sarah writes about place and how it shapes us. None of us live in a vacuum. I believe we are all influenced by place, but I also believe that we should consider more deeply the ways in which a place is also influenced by us, the roles and responsibilities we have in participating in the communities which we call home and giving back to the communities that shape us. It's a question I think I will spend the rest of my life pondering but one I thoroughly enjoyed diving into today. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Yeah, it's actually funny too, because I'm planning to get a Loblolly tattoo, and so I really related to that oh, whole piece nice. of, of the book. Um, with the pine tree tattoo. But yeah, I I think where I would love to just start, it looks like Vic, Vic has already gotten us started, um, is... <laughs> In your own words, I would love to hear about where home is to you and what what home meant in writing this book. What was the second part of your question? 
how did home influence this novel project? And feel free, you know, we'll do the whole bio at the beginning, but feel free to tell us a little bit about the project um, and kind of the journey and course of that. And then we'll go from there. Yes. Well, home is a very complicated and weighted issue for me (laughs) Um, because even when I was younger, we moved around and I think a lot of people move around, but we kept moving up and down the same pipeline sort of. So I was born in Durham. We lived in Raleigh until I was through fifth grade. Then we moved to upstate New York and I was there from sixth to 10th, but then I came back. So it was then I was like 11th and 12th. Um, graduated from Enloe High School in Raleigh, went on to Guilford College in um, Greensboro, moved to Atlanta when I got my first job, had no intention of leaving the South in any way um, until I got like, they closed down the Atlanta office I was working in and we could either take a severance or move to Boston. And I remember looking at job postings in Boston. I was like, nope, 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 nope. And then I ended up going to Boston anyway. But in the meantime, my family, my mother is from Maryland, but her mother was from North Carolina. And my father's family is from the area that really this book sort of takes place um, around Wallace in eastern North Carolina, very rural area. Um, And they left while I was in college and moved to Missouri. So it was even like my it's not like I moved around a lot, but even even when I was still in North Carolina, they had they moved while I was in college. So there's always a lot of displacement. And then even before we moved to upstate New York, um, I lived in Raleigh. My father's family, my grandmother lived in this Eastern North Carolina rural area. So I understood that my family roots were very deep there. Like I think in the 17, early 1700s. Um, I don't know the full history, but I, I think my ancestors came from Switzerland because they're trying to get rid of all the poor people and all the Baptists. Otherwise you had to stay in Switzerland, but they're like, bye Baptists, bye poppers, you're gone. So those are my people like going so far back. But when we would go visit, I understood I didn't really belong there. So because my father left, went to college, and he never really went back. But so I would go there. And even though I must have had a Southern accent before I moved to upstate New York, um, the Southern accents of my family were so much stronger. The, way, like, the kind of schools they went to were so different. The, the landscape was so different, right? And so I always kind of never felt quite at home anywhere. <laughs> Um, which sounds sadder than it is. It's just sort of like trying to figure out like, do I belong? And then my uncle would like make jokes like, oh, you guys are the city slickers or, and I think I told this story in a different article, but I remember I would, we would work in his like turkey houses when we were pretty young, like not in a, you know, in a way that he'd like pay us some money on, you know, when we were visiting. And I guess this is not every child's experience, but I'm like picking up dead turkeys, you know, whatever. And I remember him saying like, go around yonder, get my eyeglasses. I remember saying this in another interview, but it like this moment stuck with me and I couldn't understand what he was saying. It was really horrifying to me that I couldn't under- speak his language because that kept mean I was other than the actual land where my family was from for 300 years. And I, like, I didn't even belong there. And it was like obvious. Um, so I got really into this idea of home and like where you belong and like, do you belong because your family has lived there forever? Do you belong because you own the deed to the land? And in the case of my, you know, not rich um, family, they were still white with the capability to own even like, you know, poor dirt farms as they're like called, but they could own that property where other populations couldn't. But then that land changed over time. So as industrial farming and corporate farming came in, in the 90s, I remember when Well, I remember when the turkey houses went in and then I remember when the hog houses went in, which if you're from North Carolina, you probably heard a lot about the environmental impact 
of industrial hog farming? This is a very long answer to your question, um, but I think it all connects. I remember them building the hog houses and I remember them digging the lagoon, which is eventually where all the hog waste goes. And before the hogs were there, we swam in that lagoon. Um, and I remember like, I love that land. And like, but years later, like you're not going to swim in anything any there, there anymore. Um, you're not going to touch the soil much when you walk by it. And um, yeah, so it, it was like, it just changed a lot. Everything changed, which is what happens as you grow, I guess. So I struggle with that a lot. And then in the meantime, I've lived in Boston now probably longer than I lived for a single stint in North Carolina. So what does that mean when you don't even live in the place that you think is like your origin? And then you come back to like a place, but you're like, I don't belong here. Like there's weird cultural things that happen to me all the time that tell me I don't really belong in the North either. So I'm conflicted about home, which is why I guess I wrote a book about it. I am everything you were saying. I was just thinking like, wow, I can relate so, so deeply to that. Um, I am in a similar experience, but my family's on the mountains of North Carolina where mm. my mom was the first person to leave North Carolina. My grandma was the first person to kind of leave Appalachia. I, like you, I don't have a Southern accent necessarily. I think I did much more as a child. My mom has a much deeper accent than me and my grandparents have very deep Appalachian accents as does the rest of my extended family. And I just so, so can understand exactly the experience you're talking about where technically I was born in San Francisco. It's where my family happened to be living at the mm -hmm. time, but the rest of my family is North Carolina, North and South Carolina have always been home and didn't really feel like home when I was growing up here. Um, I just knew that like, that is kind of where my family was, went to New York thinking I would just find and make a new home and realized I didn't really fit in here either. But then having the experience of coming back to North Carolina, also feeling like, Hmm, this is not, home in the way that like, these are my people, but I am now to them kind of an outsider who's gone somewhere else. And I, I think this is a really common experience in a lot of ways for people, especially in this region where so much of being a Southerner today is about if you want opportunity, you have to leave. And I, I really hate that perception. Um, I don't think it's entirely true, but I also recognize that for many people, it has been true. And at least in my family, I can understand that I have a lot of opportunities that other people in my family did not because my mom left North Carolina. But it's, it's mm -hmm. such a complicated way to approach it. And I thought you did a really wonderful job of that in the book, which is Down Here We Come Up, and we're, we're of course, going to talk about. But I, I think we have similar kind of journeys with that. And I think many people in the South feel that way. And I was writing about it in the newsletter this week. Of There's something to me about coming back and saying, I'm going to forge this home in this place that might not even really want me here. But mm. I think sometimes you can choose your home in that sense of saying, this is where I want to be. And I'm going to, I, I think I titled it as like making a home at all costs um, and against all the odds, which is actually very much the journey of Kate in the novel. And of course, for those who haven't read it, I don't want to give too much away, but I think we see that progression for her as well of trying to figure out I've left home and I've come back to home and it's still not quite the place. And, and where am I going to go to really have that feeling? But also thinking about home mm -hmm. is something that you carry with you throughout everywhere you go. Um, and I think the South can be thought of that way too, of that kind of ancestral piece of it as well. And I think this is not true for me when I go home. When I go home to North Carolina, I'm like, oh, let me eat all the food and let me, <laughs> there's a lot of like good positive, like there's some conflict. But what I kind of wanted to do with Kate was like she, her home is unsafe. So the main character of this book, um, she kind of via her twin brother escapes up to Boston because he gets into Harvard. Like he is really smart and gets into Harvard and they're twins. But I love this idea of like, 
isn't home supposed to be safe? So she goes to this place in Cambridge and outside of Boston and has access to like untold, you know, privilege. Um, And it's safer and it's better because she came from like a violent, poor household. Uh, But but it's not home because that is a lie of who she is. And it's actually not particularly safe for her, although it's safer for her brother. Um, But so then I liked this idea that what if what if where you belong is like um, dangerous or what if where you belong? I'm quoting, I guess. Or what if where you belong is uh, not societally accepted or accepted by society? Or what if it's like involves illegal operations? And I I love this parallel between. I, yeah, I don't, don't want to give too much away about the book, but the, the newer people, the, the people are trying to do things. There are a lot of people doing illegal things and it's not, you know, it's not, it's illegal. However, when it's, we refer to like the people who founded New England, a lot of them were doing things that were at the time legal, but deeply immoral. So I, I wanted to play with that idea of home. Like what if home, like you're most comfortable in a place that's not good for you or that it, that is doing bad things, I guess. And I think it's such a good tension to raise in this particular moment in the South where, you know, the South has the largest population of LGBT people and at the same time is taking active measures of legislation and policy that are making it unsafe for a lot of communities. And I think so many people feel that tension where this is a place that is comfortable and familiar to me. And it is also a place that does not necessarily want me here. It is not safe for me to be here. And so in order to find my own personal safety, I have to leave my home. And I think when I When I talk to people about Southern studies and so much about this project, it's grappling with that tension and trying to understand that it's really easy to say in theory, well, everyone who can leave the South should just up and leave the South, right? There's better opportunity. There's new places to go. You'll find that sense of safety. But to sum it all up, there's something to be said in that tension and that space to explore that Southern literature to me has not grappled with often. And I think growing up, I felt really conflicted about my relationship to place and my relationship to home. And I say this as someone who grew up, you know, in a white middle-class family who had a fair amount of opportunities and still felt like I had to leave this place to do better, or that the opportunities that my family had done in this kind of upward progression, that if I didn't also leave, I was failing them somehow, which is so hilarious because I can think about it. And like this entire time, all my family ever wanted was for me to come back home. Right. Um, And again, you do a really good job exploring this tension in the novel of this underlying pressure that in order to make it, you have to leave your home, but then also not really quite knowing where that is. And it's a tension that I think Southern literature is so rooted in landscape, but has not dealt with in a long time. And I have been on search the last few years for stories that do grapple with that tension and that are not afraid of it and that live in it and that say home can be both things, right? It can be a sense of safety and a place of comfort. And it can also be something that you you do have to leave sometimes. And, you know, I, I run this whole podcast. We talk so much about home and about coming back, but I also want to recognize it's not for everyone to come back. Some people's journey will take them other places and it doesn't make you any less of a Southerner. It doesn't make you any less rooted in place. It just, things move and change around. So that's a lot of thoughts there, but um, I think you did a really great job with all of this. It's to sum it all up. <laughs> Well, thank you. I think um, I am very, I think Southerners are really interested in um, stark juxtaposition, like in our music and in our, I don't know, there's something like we want to like examine polar opposites of like different issues. And I think it's interesting what you were saying about political issues, because that's something that like, there are moments where I'm like, okay, I'm just going to move back here. I'm going to come back here. Cause like I have friends there. The arts community is like 
amazing, right? In Durham, like and, and all over North Carolina, but I have friends in Durham and Raleigh and they're like, they're living their arts life, right? So I'm also often like, I'm going to come back here. Then I'm like, wait a second, I need to check my legislation in my head. Like, is it safe for me to come back there? Like, can my, I don't want to say anything to, um, uh, can, can my daughter get appropriate healthcare as a woman? Like, you know, in 10 years or so. Um, and that stops me. But so, but I don't mean that that stops me from moving back. But what I want to say is sometimes I'm like, okay, I have to acknowledge the, the really awful, violent, racist, terrible history in the South. Um, it's bad. The legislation's bad. Gerrymandering's bad. Like these things that I've watched happen, even since I left, although they were always there. Um, but, but something I have found in living in other places, particularly the North, is that they're still here. I, I mean, you could... Uh, try to think how I'd say this. Where I live north of Boston, I know many, many Trump supporters. I know many, many people um, who have very, very different ideas than I do. And I have to say that when I was actually with friends in Durham, they're like, we don't understand what you mean. I'm like, what do you mean you don't understand what I mean? <laughs> like in Boston, in New York, I can't speak for New York, but I guess oftentimes because I don't have a Southern accent, people will say things to me um, about the South, particularly around racism. Um, oh, it's so racist. It's so racist. Like, oh yeah, totally, 100%. Um, but also extremely racist here extremely racist everywhere. And the one thing, and I'm not an expert on this, so I'm, I'm hesitant to even say it, but one experience I had growing up in the South, um, and even when I go back, is there may be racism, let's just assume every human is racist. Uh, you are with each other. You are crossing each other's paths in a way that sometimes does not happen where I live now. Um, and that's something I just think is really interesting because the South does have a bad reputation as it should for, you know, difficult issues. Um, I'm nervous about saying some of this stuff, but evangelical Christians that tend to like push agendas. Um, if it's not them, it's other churches and other regions. But I guess I just see it everywhere. It's not like I came to some utopia and there wasn't that. It was still here. It was still there, um, if that makes sense. It makes complete sense. And I'm, I, I was just going to say, I'm so glad to hear you say that because I say that to people all the time in that there's something about the South that inherently means community, that even though people might disagree, there, there are deeper ties to community and to the way that people interact with each other here than anywhere else I've ever lived. And I've lived a lot of places. And mm -hmm. I think people who are not from here do not understand that. And it becomes easy to look at the news headlines and to look at the media and the stories that are told about this place and scapegoat and stereotype it in a way that allows other people to then people in other places to then absolve themselves of any guilt and and say well if, yes. if you're a good person you'll just leave and it's been really interesting to me i saw like massachusetts has billboards now in florida saying don't like it here you know come to massachusetts and to me i'm like i wish people would would find you know, that's not useful in Florida right now. Like this kind of expat culture mm. is what is more useful is like the money that you spend on I the billboards, like that. funding that. <laughs> yeah. Funding it to like local LGBT organizations, right? Like to the people who are, who are staying on the ground to do the work, which is again, not for everybody, but there is something that I, I've never been able to put it into words, but the way in which communities, even if they disagree, interact and are just often by, by need and by consequence, pushed together in ways here that I lived in Manhattan, which is such a melting pot of cultures from around the world. And yet 
it was also so easy to only hang out with people who like looked like me, who came from my socioeconomic status to kind of just stay in my little neighborhood academic bubble and not actually venture out. And I'll talk to friends in New York now and they're like, well, I don't want to go to the Bronx. The Bronx is unsafe. And it's like, you do have so many different people and places around you, but if you're not making effort to connect with them, then it's just as easy to kind of silo yourself into a world where it's it's people who look like you and think like you and agree with you. And I, I think the internet makes this so much worse too. But I'm really glad to hear you bring it up because I, I try to raise it a lot in this podcast and I never quite know how to put it into words. And I think it's something that many people have experienced, but it's a difficult thing to articulate. Yeah, I, I agree. <laughs> um, and I think it's hard because you want to, I think whenever I find myself defending the South, I don't want it to ever be perceived that I'm I'm defending the parts of the South that are clearly wrong, <laughs> right? Um, and for a while, I would say that I used to be able to say this. I don't think this was true in this most recent trip. I used to be able to say I've seen in my life more Confederate flags in rural Maine than I ever saw growing up in North Carolina. This most recent trip, I think I saw more Confederate flags. So again, like when I say, you know, I want to defend the place I'm from, what I mean is when we cross a certain line into the South or this year we flew, we get off the airplane, my, you know, little New England children are like, why is everyone talking to us? I'm like, yeah, that's what we, that's what happens. You look in someone's eye, you might never want to have dinner with, like, you're not, maybe not going to their house. Like, that would be great if we all did that all the time. But you will acknowledge them. You will, you will have some sort of interaction um, where they're talking to you. So I think, so I'm trying to talk about like, yeah, just the way the general community works. But I think people, I'm always afraid people are going to think I'm like, you know, made the South rise again, or like, I'm saying something deeply racist or wrong. And um, so, but that's why I think I'm not, again, I'm not an expert. I'm so excited to hear about the program you're exploring and that there are programs out there doing that. But I know in my bones that there's this juxtaposition in the South, probably because of the violent history, right? Like these really rich communities and also communities that destroyed people, took their property, took their homes, took their lives, took their bodies. Like, so we're always grappling with that. And there are people way smarter than me talking about that. I think in this, um, or who have more experience talking about that. But I did want to kind of talk about that challenge. Like in that book, I wanted to be like, the land is beautiful. The land is poisoned. Mm -hmm. the, the woman is living in this mildewed falling apart bungalow, but she owns it. <laughs> like that's a huge deal, right? It's a sharecropper house, but she lives there. No one's, no one in theory is going to take it away. So just those juxtapositions. And I think it's kind of breaking down some... I mean, breaking down juxtaposition and putting things up close. If I had someone not long ago tell me, you know, you're kind of a, a Southern apologist. And I had to say, hold on, like, that's not at all what I'm trying to be or the work that I want to do, right? I think where where I feel really strongly about this project and about the role of literature and storytelling and art is seeing the South up close as it is, right? So looking around and paying attention and saying, we're not not acknowledging that some really horrible things have happened here and continue to happen. And it is a place of a lot of trauma and pain and suffering. That being said, there's also amounts of joy and connection and community that I think the way the stories have been told about the South for a long time are only focusing on one. And, and you have to be able to have both. You have to hold that juxtaposition. And for me, that interest is often in Southern Gothic literature, which I think inherently just enables us to break down binaries and really see things as both kind of beautiful and grotesque all at once. But the push that I would like to see right now in kind of the approach to Southern art and literature is to be able to see things up close and to encourage people to pay more attention. You know, it's not saying we're only going to look one way, we're only going to look the other way. I think it's really encouraging people to stop thinking about place and about culture and community. And this is a lot of the work I do as a folklorist, but 
to think beyond a binary and to see things in their entirety as, as nice and difficult as that is. It's, it's kind of both in equal measure. It's funny to think about, like, again, I'm not an expert about talking about this, but thinking about different art forms, like, well, two stories just popped into my head. One was, I was at like a thesis defense um, for an undergraduate, but they did like, they're talking about Gothic literature, but like Southern Gothic didn't come up. <laughs> and I was like, my face was like melting. I was like, how could you not acknowledge the region's greatest art? But okay, forget that. Um, and I was in a New England cl- like classroom. We will talk about Southern Gothic lit like offline. You and I will find a time to just okay. We'll we'll, we'll do that later. Nerd out over it, yeah. But but I'm even thinking about um, like like uh, music. So this week I went and saw Watch House, which used to be Mandolin Orange, and we were in Central Mass. I think they're in North Carolina. I think they're from Chapel Hill, but I hope I'm not getting that wrong. Um, but a friend of ours, they're Durham, I believe. They are Durham. Okay, I, I was like, I'm pretty sure they live in Nashville now, but I pretty anyway. But if you listen to that music, it was so interesting because I, I really liked them um, before, but a friend of ours is now like the drummer in that band. So we had this really cool experience to go see him play with them. And I was thinking about their music. There's really, really old, and I'm, I can't talk about music articulately because I'm not a musician, but just as a, um, an audience member, there's like this really particular sound of like the probably more Appalachian sound, like this like fiddle playing, right? And then he's like playing the mandolin, these really traditional sort of sounds that I think go with Southern culture. Um, But then they take it and they turn it into a different art form. And like their song, Wildfire, I think really talks about this juxtaposition. If you've never, I don't know if you want to put it like in the show notes, that's one of my favorite songs of theirs, but he talks about growing up in the South. He talks about the history and what it means and what it could have meant. And that, I think that's, um, I am always looking for kind of stories like that, not to, again, not to apologize for what, has happened, but just to um, try to make sense of it. And then I don't only write about the South. Like this book took me forever to write due to life, but I've written another one that hopefully will go on submission soon. And it's about a New England town. But but where I see the themes are like it's really about social class. So both of those books are deeply about st- the stratifications of social class. And one just ha- you know one is where I'm more from, and one is more where I live. But I think that racism is inherent in talking about the South and that like, you know, structural racism and how it's been used, but also like social class. Like I always think, and it's related to race, right? It's like the, the poorest schools are like, you know, I, I don't, I think I, when we moved to upstate New York, they like put us in remedial like classes because they were basically like, oh, well, you're from the South. So that's where you belong. And like, I, that's not true for the school district I was in. It's just not true. They were wrong. However, I hate that healthcare isn't what it should be, right? Or services aren't what they should be. Um, but that's part of an oppressive system. Anyway, I'm not the expert to talk about this. But whether I'm writing about a coastal blue collar New England town, or I'm writing about this rural Southern thing, I think I'm kind of talking about the same thing. Is like, where does everyone fall in intersectionality? Like, that was one of the things I really wanted to explore in that book. or or the first book is the main character, Kate has everything against her. um, But she does have citizenship. And there's another character who, if there was just not that border, if there was just not the the necessity for a certain documentation and paper, she's of a much higher social class. But because of that one like click of like access or, or, her identity as a non-citizen 
at this time in this particular country, she just falls like completely down the ladder of opportunity, right? Even though she has a college education, like all the things that should. So I just, I love thinking about that, I guess. Love is not the right word. I, I feel compelled to grapple with that. <laughs> I think it's a, a very important and, and great thing to grapple with. I wonder if at this point, without spoiling it, because we want everyone to buy the book and read it, if you could give just like a short synopsis for our listeners who have not gotten to read it yet. And I think also the title with that of kind of coming down and coming up and and moving through those lines across place, but also across class. Um, The title of the book is Down Here We Come Up. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about a short synopsis of the book and also how how you landed there with the title. Yes. So short synopsis of the book is that the main character, this woman, Kate, and her twin brother, Luke, have kind of escaped um, in their early years, mostly because he goes to Harvard and she follows him up there. And they escape their con artist mother, Jackie, um, who's always sort of hustling. Um, But after being away about eight years, Jackie calls her daughter and says, listen, I know what happened to the daughter Kate gave up for adoption. I want you to come home. And I'll tell you where she is. But in exchange, she wants her to do this extremely, like, Kate, she wants her to do something really drastic. She basically wants her to drive across the border into um, Juarez, Mexico, and bring back these, like, three kids. And Kate knows her mother is a con artist and is like, what on earth is her angle here? But because Kate's life is sort of disintegrating um, with her boyfriend, who happens to be a Harvard professor that she met through her brother, um, she just leaves. But when she returns, she realizes it's not just that her mom's trying to get her to do this one con. There's like a lot going on. Her ex-boyfriend's up to something big. Um, she realizes her mother doesn't take her long to realize her mother is running a safe house for migrant workers. So people kind of passing through, um, Eastern North Carolina on their way to different places. So, um, I learned a little bit when I was writing this book about sort of pipelines and this gets into the title like kind of pipelines of, you know, people come from south of the U.S. border and there's different places they go um, and there's different stops that they make. But because of the demand of agriculture in eastern North Carolina, particularly with livestock, so hog farms, turkey farms, meat processing plants, like all of that, there's a demand for labor. So people arrive in that part of the state and they, you know, they kind of pass through different places in order to start working in those places. So I was thinking about that, people coming from way down south, going north, right? Um, Kate herself as a main character is going from North Carolina up to Boston and back. But then I also started, and I did not, I was not, when I started this book a long time ago, had nothing to do with migrant workers. It had nothing to do with the drug gun pipeline that (laughs) runs, like drugs run north and guns run south, which I just learned about. so there's a lot of vertical pipelines here, but I wasn't, I was like, I was writing about, was she going to pick her old boyfriend or her new boyfriend? That was like literally what that book was about. And what was in, what was like implied with that, the North versus the South. But 15 years later, more than 15 years later, for being honest, um, it just kept layering in. I was like, well, how can I write about Eastern North Carolina now and not write about the populations that had lived there? Like, how can I not talk about that? Um, and so really, what I, I think the, the title has a lot to do with those verticals, North, North versus South in the United States, North versus South, the U.S. and Mexico and, the, and Central America and countries below where people are coming from. Um, social class, like 
Luke, her brother is like, put me on the fastest train to rise via like social class as fast as I can go. And, and, and I, I mean, all, all the characters make sense to me. Like that's something that happened over time. I'm like, hell yeah, Luke, why would you, why wouldn't you, why wouldn't you use, like you got into Harvard, why wouldn't you use that just to completely erase your life if you're him? Um, or people who haven't left, like people who are living in that rural area, like the main character's ex-boyfriend Smith, like he can't, he doesn't have a way to make his family's greenhouse better because that's where it is. Like he can't just take it to, so anyway, I'm kind of rambling now, but I, I, there were so many verticals I realized, like these different pipelines, this climb of social class falls from social class. And that's where the title kind of came from. Down here we come up. And then the other part is just sort of this, when you're called to do something. So like your mother calls you home, you're like, I'm not going home. You're like, oh God, I've got to go home because my mother called me home. Or um, I don't want to go home because my mother's a con artist. I'm not doing it, but I feel like I need to find out what happened to this, in her case, the, this person I gave birth to or whatever. Um, yeah, that's it, I guess. I think you do that as well in the novel, just with all of the different characters. Because um, we get so many different characters in this story and all of them are kind of tracing different pipelines in different directions. I'm thinking of the neighbor who passed away and then who has the land. And we're seeing that now it's an abandoned house, but it's also a safe house, which again, takes me back to the idea of home as it changes and, you know, safe and safe for who and safe for what time and, you know, things having just temporality attached to them. Um, I am curious about kind of how you got started on the migrant narrative within this piece of, did you come back to North Carolina? And it is, it is very, very true of, across the South as a whole, populations are changing drastically. And to not acknowledge that in the way we're presenting our art about the South right now is it would just be inauthentic. And it, it goes back to the piece we were talking about of just learning to pay attention and see things up close. But I'm wondering about the research that you brought into this um, or what that process was like for you. Well, I guess what I would say is I did know, I this story is completely fiction. Like it's fiction. I mean, yes, I can trace threads to like things I saw in my life. Like I did work in a turkey house for my uncle and like, I know what that smells like and looks like and all that. Um, but oh, I forgot what I was going to say. Oh, I do know people who came a long time ago as migrant workers and then stayed and stayed in an area, became part of like people's family, became integrated into like this sort of cultural system. So I, I already knew, I already knew personally people who that was the case for. Um, and then over the many years I've sort of known people in that situation, you'd realize like, I, I moved to Massachusetts. I'm not from Massachusetts, but over time I can access things that make me part of the community. I can purchase a home if I'm lucky enough or join the PTA at my kid's school or like whatever. I can become part of that. But in some ways, the people who come because of immigration and documentation cannot fully become their access, the place that they have now lived for 20 years. And in the case of Eastern North Carolina or a lot of agricultural communities, those are the people that actually are causing there to continue to be economic growth, right? Like they're, they're actually the people making the create or picking the food, processing the food, filling the jobs that people like my part of the family would never take because we left. Like we wouldn't, we would never, I mean, right. Unless I'm hungry, I'm not going to do. So like you have an entire group of people who 
the community needs, the economy needs, but they don't get the payback of the false American dream that like, if you come here, you can have this, right? Um, and so that's, I guess that was really on my mind is like, as time passes, you, you can't have the farm that you kept afloat. Now your children, if they're born here, they might be able to have the, anyway. Um, so I think that I, because I had had personal experience, like thinking about those issues and seeing that I was interested in it. I don't know when I actively decided to put it in the story. I do remember a conversation with a friend of mine who's Mexican American, who lives more, she lives on the near Laredo. And I do remember a conversation with her where I was like, we were in dark or dark, stark disagreement um, about immigration stuff. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. And then I had this realization that I was like, you know what? I wonder if in Eastern North Carolina, you're seeing people more on the settling end of that pipeline. She's from Laredo. She is seeing more. She's also in law enforcement. She's also Mexican-American and I'm white. So when she, I would like, you're wrong. That's not true about people coming to this country. She's like, oh no, it, this is true. But I was like, well, maybe because where we are is different. Like where she, what she is seeing of people just over the border, what she's seeing in law enforcement is different than what I'm seeing. We're talking about the same thing, but we're not talking about the same thing. But, but was I very, very conscious as a white woman who left North Carolina 20 plus years ago to talk about migrant workers in Eastern North Carolina? I was absolutely terrified. I didn't even want to do it. I, but I kept being like, but that's the story of these three mothers. I, I told the whole thing about what the book's about. But what the story is really about is these three mothers who lost their children in various ways and then sought to get them back. But each of those mothers has a way to help the other one. Like Kate can help Maribel get her kids back because she might be able to get them over that border. But Maribel can't get her own kids back, but she might be able to play a role. So I think once that part of the story emerged, I kept trying to push it away and be like, don't do that, Sarah, that's stupid. <laughs> like, don't, don't go down that road. But once I realized like, no, that's really what this book is about. I then did what I'm, I'm glad I did this. I the publisher hired an official sensitivity reader um, who looked at the book and actually, I mean, I knew she'd be helpful and amazing, um, but just things you can't even think of. She's like, this is like Bush era immigration, not this sounds like Obama era, but we what you're really talking about is Bush era. Like you can do all the internet research in the world and not kind of uncover that. Um, and then I had two other friends, one who was actually from, um, she lives in Massachusetts, but she grew up outside of Juarez or near Juarez in the same state area in Chihuahua. And she was really helpful because she's like, she's a middle-class, upper middle-class person. And I will say, I will admit that when I finally was accepting writing this, I was like mostly writing about very, very poor, desperate people crossing a border to help their families. And I was like, oh, right. But like, there's like, that's like one part of like, I'm kind of treating a people as that. And I was like, you know what, Maribel, she, she, should, she should be more middle class. She would have a passport. Like, of course she would have a passport. And I was like, oh, well, you know, they wouldn't have passport. Like, I, I, so I ha was very lucky to have two friends who I paid. And then this sensitivity, we were both to give me feedback saying, okay, you got this wrong. You did this wrong. And then I was able to go back, I hope, and just sort of like re- try really, really hard not to propagate any stereotypes, try not to do anything damaging. And also to be able to talk about this without putting anyone at risk. So again, I have like a personal connection that yes, I think I want I'm processing what I saw happen. But then also whenever we create art, it like elevates things to another level where you're then responsible for the narrative and the effects it has. Like you're not just writing about your own experience. You're trying to 
talk about something. Did that answer your question? Yes, it really did. And I think it's okay. such <laughs> an, a yeah, I, I'm really interested to hear, I'm, I work in publishing and kind of the literary nonprofit world. So I'm very familiar with like the idea of hiring cultural sensitivity readers. I think it's so important. I work with a lot of those things. I'm thinking about this a lot in my own novel project, which is set on the coast of South Carolina, right? And to tell that story accurately is to also tell it about not just people who look like me, but how do you do that effectively and how do you do that right? For people who are not involved in the literary world or the publishing world, I wonder if this might be a great point to kind of pivot a little bit to your own career as a creative and as a writer and how you got involved in writing in general and also a little bit about just what was the process of publishing this book like and how has it been received in the world? I know you've been on book tour both here in North Carolina, but also in New York and in Boston. And I'm also interested within that of the cultural reactions in both places and, and if that's been similar or different. Well, to answer your last question first, I haven't done any, so I just got back like a week and three days ago and like semester starting, I teach. Um, so I haven't done any Boston or New York events I, and they're booked, but um, it, it'll be really interesting because I will say that when I was in North Carolina, I was able to, like, I was reading passages about the beach because I was like, they are totally going to know what I'm talking about. Like North Carolina beaches versus like Nantucket and like people were like, oh my gosh, that is so true. I was actually on Huntington Beach as I was reading this book and I got to a passage where it was at Huntington Beach and I turned to my boyfriend. I was like, oh my gosh, we're here. <laughs> like, look at this, which was a very cool moment. It was, or, or you had a whole section where you're talking about um, like Cat's Cradle and Local 506, which are places that I frequent and go to all the time. And it blew my mind a little bit because I realized I don't know that I've ever read a story that I could mm. connect to the place. And that was a very, very cool experience. And then it made me think about how many stories that are out there that for a lot of people, like they can read a million novels set in New York city. Right. And say like, well, I know that diner. I know that corner. That's my museum. And what that would be like to create a culture of Southern literature where, where people have that feeling. Cause it was really cool to be like, Whoa, I'm reading about this place that I go to every Saturday and here it is in a book. Anyway, that's an aside, but um, I will be, I too will be interested to see how the reaction is. I think I can say, though, and I can tell a more linear story about the path to publication, but I will say that there were little times along the way where people would say things like, um, could that really happen there? Or are people that poor there? Or um, I'm thinking about, like, of course, like um, American Dirt came out. So I went on submission. And again, I can tell a linear version of the story in a second. I went out on submission and there was a lot of attention or like a lot of people said positive things. And then someone was said something like this. I don't even know if I'm allowed to talk about this, but I'm gonna talk about it anyway. And I won't use names. Um, but so an editor was like, this is an amazing book talking about mine. However, I just lost out um, in a bid for this amazing book called American dirt. Okay. Skip forward, like however long later. And I obviously, controversy comes out around American dirt. I was like, wait a minute. I recognize that name. I went back to the email to see like what was said. And I like started freaking out. Cause I was like, I don't want to do that. That's like, that's the reason I almost didn't talk about this story in Eastern North Carolina that I've never seen this kind of what I talked about, talked about. I've never read that. Um, I only just, because his book came out on the same day of my, as mine, David Joy, who I should know. Um, but he was written a bunch of books about Western North Carolina. And I just, I haven't read his most recent one, but I was listening to his previous one. Anyway, all of this to say, I heard some North Carolina things, even though it's a different part of the state where I was like, oh, yes, yes. And he, he was talking about like racial makeup of like changing racial makeup. And anyway, I forget where I'm going with all this. 
I think it's probably pretty normal, even if that you get really excited when someone recognizes your place. And it's really frustrating when people don't understand your place and then try to say like, oh, this is a book about U.S. or, or like um, Mexican immigrants or Mes- Mexican migrants. So we already published one of those this year. And I was like, hold up. This book is not about that to me. I had to talk about it and I wanted to talk about it and I wanted to do it well, but it's about these women and like loss and trying to, um, I was really careful not to inhabit the POV of someone who was a migrant worker crossing the border. Like I had no, anyway, so I'm rambling to say that I don't, and I don't want to criticize the publishing industry because they're up against the impossible like consolidation, corporate takeover, like antitrust lawsuits. Now, you know, we're down to four publisher, big four, big five. I don't even know where we are. Like, I'm not criticizing that, but I think that, and it's not, it, and I also teach like marketing communication, like that's my day job. So I understand that the product that people want to read is the one you have to publish, but that's not great if you are writing literary fiction or poetry or but that's not the fault. Of, it's not necessarily the fault of the publishing industry. It's kind of like, that's what people are reading. Like when I walk by people in an airport, I'm looking over their shoulder. Like they're not, sometimes they're reading literary fiction. So that's hard. It's so hard to be like producing something that there's not enough people to support it as an industry. So I have to have a whole nother job, even though I did my, you know, this is my graduate degree. Like, it's just, it's kind of frustrating. Now I'm just complaining. I want to like wrap this up into more of a path to publication story. No, I I work (laughs) in nonprofit publishing and I'm an academic and I I work in development and freelance. So I'm in the same boat where I completely agree. And one of the books that comes to mind for me is um, Where the Crawdads Sing, which anyone who listens to this podcast knows of my, my distaste for this book solely because, well, that and Hillbilly Elegy of, I think anyone who is from North Carolina and reads that book knows it it is saying about a place in a way that is like, well, that is not accurate. Like that does not happen. You would not go to Asheville to get supplies when you live in Wilmington, but (laughs) I digress. But I remember being, you know, coming up kind of my start in the publishing world and writing, starting to write a lot of stories about the South and getting comparisons to both of those two books, mostly because my work is at the intersection of like the coastal South and Southern Appalachian. I was like, actually, Hillbilly Elegy is not even set in the South, number one. And number two, I mean, where the crawdad's saying now, has become like everyone I talk to about the Southern Gothic wants to talk about this book. And I'm like, it's just at the end of the day, like not even an accurate reflection of place and whatever. I'm happy for her just because there's one book set in the coastal South doesn't mean that's it. Right. Like we can't have, that is my fear with, as we start, it's so exciting to see all of these new books that are coming out. I am also seeing at the same time, this back end on publishing yeah. where they're like, Oh, well, we've already got one now. We don't need another kind of coastal Southern Gothic story. And it drives me crazy to no end. So you can always come on this podcast and rant about publishing um, because if anyone relates to it. <laughs> oh, great. And it's not, and again, <laughs> I'm not even sure it's the, the individual sitting in that room trying to get the publisher to take that book's fault because I it, it, like, cause they're advocating for that book, but they like, it's like, well, our list already has that. So it's like the machine is saying, that's not like there's like one evil person who's like, ha ha, we have Delia Owens, no one else, but like, but that one, yeah, that one is a special. I got comped to that a lot. And I remember my my story about my story about that book where the crowd dad sing is my agent was like, let's comp to that. And I was like, 
And she, not like, not when I was querying her, like when she, we were going to go out on submission. So she was going to send it out to editors. She's like, so let's comp to that. And I was like, over my dead body, never. And I'll tell you why. And so I tell her why. We're in agreement on this. Because sometimes I say it and I'm always like, I don't want to offend anybody. People love that book, but. But here's the thing. I cannot. I, I could not, you know, whatever. Um, and she listened to me. She didn't comp it to that. But later I understood that was a mistake because she's not trying to tell me who I am. She's not asking for my literary criticism of this book. She knows the language that is necessary for those editors to use in a certain room to like get pat. Anyway, so I realized that I had said no to, to the, not that she is a machine or they're a machine. Like I said no to, but like, that's like almost like I was telling someone how to do their job. And then later, um, I'm thinking now about what I'm saying out loud on this recorded podcast. But later when it was a couple, like when the publisher was like, my publisher said, everyone is waiting for the next crawdads. And she is right. Like, she's right. This isn't it. (laughs) But like, she's, she's right. Like people, the wider national readership doesn't think about these places that we are writing from. Like you are literally, you all are literally living there where I'm from. Like, where you know we're writing about or like creating art about so it does feel like it's a smaller space um and then even on the back cover like a friend of mine gave me a blurb and included that title she's like I know how you feel but I just want you to think about it (laughs) like when she blurbed the book and I was like "I I don't want that on my book but I also know the power of that title to readers and it's true to the general reader um, it's about North Carolina and that, I, does that make sense? And it's about like a poor, a girl who's poor. Yeah. They have nothing to do with each other. She also, two books in coastal North Carolina, same location. Therefore we can come. Right. And we know, wouldn't do that with New public. York, but, or maybe we would, no. I, I'm not sure. New York is, has just has too much work. Right. Because we could, there, there's already articles written about that. Right. Um, so I, I guess what I'm trying to say is I'm trying to make peace with understanding that the thing that I tend to write is literary fiction or upmarket. Like I don't need it to be stuffy. I don't need it to be slow. I definitely want my drugs and my sex and I want my plot to move and I want, but I want character development and I am language first as a writer. Like I'm not like, I just want to play with language. Like that's like the, I was with someone last night who like cooks every night. I was like, what is wrong with you? You do this every night. He's like, this is what I like to do. I was like, I don't understand, but I do understand like trying to reformat words over many, many years to have an effect or have like, that's what I like to do. If I, re- I guess another thing about publishing, I do think we're at a diet. This is not, I'm not giving you the linear story, that, but maybe we don't need a linear story. Um, I do think that everyone I know in publishing right now, the agents, the editors, and I know more writers than I do those people, so I shouldn't speak for them, but I have a friend who's a very literary writer, very literary. Um, And then I have friends who are much more commercial. Every single one of us is kind of in a mess. Kind of in a mess. Um, I think the agents are in a mess. I think the public, the entire industry is in a mess of like, there's, it's a shrinking space, but at the same time, I shouldn't speak about things I'm not sure about because I, I just went to like seven different Southern bookstores and they were robust and full of people and people were purchasing books. So I can't tell what's going on. I think, yeah, I, I'm not sure what's going on. I, another thing I'll say, I'll give you a tiny example. I I teach a class, or I have taught a class called The Literature of the U.S. Opioid Crisis. And I'll just give a tiny example. Neither of my books are 
a really, really about the opioid crisis, but I taught a class on that. And I forgot what I was just going to say, uh, something about, oh, and I just created a spreadsheet, like a canon. And there was tons of work that was like journalist, write an article, they get that gets bought, and then they end up writing a book, like Pat, Patrick Radden Keefe, um, Empire of Pain, Beth Macy, Dope Sick. Um, her most recent book that I'm blanking on the name of, but it's probably around here somewhere. Um, so journalist nonfiction into now like Hulu specials, like number one show I believe on Netflix right now is Painkiller, which it's Barry and I'm blanking on his last name. Um, he wrote one of the first things about the Sacklers and the opioid crisis. But what's interesting is if you look at that canon and then we have, oh, you'll know, Vic, you'll know, I can't believe I'm blanking on her name, photographer who took the Sacklers down, very famous, Fran, um, no, not Fran. I'll look it up. I'll send it to you. All the Beauty and Bloodshed is the documentary that was just made about her. So All the Beauty and Bloodshed on HBO. I think HBO optioned it. Why am I selling this story? Okay. As a marketing communication professor, I should be able to look at that and be like, oh, we're going. We're going with this. There's going to be opioids all the time. However, it's not true. So people, this is not me, but I know people who are trying to publish work that is about the opioid crisis and people are just, the publishing industry is like, this is great, but it's too depressing. This is great, but we, we can't do this anymore. This is great, but someone already did it. But that seems to only be true for fiction. So I guess my point is, the longer you try to figure it out, the more crazy you go, I think, for me. So I think the job maybe as of the artist is to try to, I say this as a woman who really does have to work, like it's so easy to be like, just do your art. But like, it's hard when that's like what you're doing on this, like what you're supposed to be doing full time and you're doing it on the side. But you really, you are, you, the only choice is to do what you're deeply compelled to do because you are not going to be able to figure it out unless you were writing in maybe like more of a genre and you're like, cause, and then you might be able to like figure out like writing it in a more formulaic way, which I think is fine. Cause that's actually, if you want to like salary, that's probably the best way to go. Um, but if you're compelled to do these, like, like what you're talking about, exploring narrative and place and the ecosystem, like we just have to do it as academics or artists and understand that we'll always have to have a way to support ourselves, but it's still super important work. I'm so glad to, hear you have this conversation because it feels like something I've driven myself crazy with the last few years in that the novel that I'm working on now has been through four or so drafts and, and similar to your own progression, it started as just kind of like a queer Southern love story where I read normal people and I loved normal people. And I was like, I want that, but I want that oh, in the South. Yeah. And then it very much became... Ooh, I'd, I'd read that. Well, let me... Well, the, the, here's the progression <laughs> of it. So it's it's changed quite okay. a bit of... it. I'm now on the fourth draft, which is tied to my thesis work that I'm doing in graduate school and, and connected to that. But I wrote this initial draft and then I kind of thought about it and I was like, I want more. And at the time it was 2020 and I was watching so many people around me kind of fall into the internet holes of kind of very QAnon related things. Just people were desperate and they wanted something to believe in. And so I wanted to play with the idea of belief and with social media. And so I pulled in kind of some sort of more like Southern Gothic elements. It involved like two girls falling in love on a road trip in Florida. One's mom goes missing. I was pulling in a lot of landscape in North Carolina, like Eastern North Carolina, where I was teaching at the time. A lot of stuff there. Um, I finished that draft, felt really good about it and started sending it out. And I had a lot of similar reactions with publishers where 
was very much like, this is great, but we, we don't know where to publish it, or this is great, but like, there's no market for this. And, you know, I work on the flip side in publishing. So I kind of understand the language and I I even know how to market things, but eventually I just decided, well, I'm going to take it off of like querying completely. And I'm just going to sit back and rewrite it and think about what is important to me. And now it is following, um, there were these two pine trees that I used to drive to work where actually the school that Vic and I met working in, but they both grew straight up out of the ground, like very, very tall Labali pines. And each of them due to wind patterns only grew on one side. And so it looked like a giant gate in the sky. And I was like, that is a portal to something. And so then I've become really obsessed with um, the idea of the South as portals. And I have to shout out um, Sarah McKay-Bidays here, who is amazing, who has a bunch of academic work called the South as a portal, who has now become kind of a friend and collaborator of mine. But now this draft is taking place in like a post climate change Appalachia set also on the coast with a lot of different elements, but looking at what does the South look like under climate change and, and how are we thinking about that? And there's still elements of, of love in there and mythology, but I, I kind of just had to reckon with, I was like, well, if nothing is publishable in mainstream publishing, and, and it seems like the books I'm reading and like that are getting a lot of press are often the ones that are just as weird as possible of authors really sticking true to their vision. I was like, we're going to just take this really far and I've talked to many people who come onto this podcast about it, who are just now friends in real life. I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing with this. I don't know if it'll go anywhere, but I'm having a lot of fun writing it. And so I think the moral of all of it is you have to tell the story that feels true to you and you just can't worry too much about it. And I also want to take a moment here to just shout out, like, especially in the South, there's so many amazing small presses, um, Hub City. And I know we got connected through Zoe and Cassie who work with Pine State, but so many incredible authors and incredible books are are not going through the big five publishers or big four. I don't even know what it is these days. You don't have to go that route. Um, there's so many amazing kind of agents and editors who are working on a smaller scale who are interested in this. And I think we're starting to see a cultural interest of stories about the South that I think as people are realizing maybe the stereotypes and associations they've long held about this place are maybe not accurate. They're turning to stories that could help explain that difference. And we don't quite have a new canon of those stories yet. I think we're building a really awesome canon of modern literature. Um, Boys of Alabama is another book that I rave about to everyone that comes to mind that is set in Alabama and dealing with like religion and football and gods and regeneration and all the things. But we're getting there. I don't think we're there yet. But I like to think that, you know, it's authors like you, um, Virginia Hudson, who wrote Boys of Alabama. And I like to consider myself somewhere along this pipeline that we're going to be changing this a little bit and pushing it forward. So I look forward to, to seeing where we go. And not North Carolina, but like my two literary heroes probably right now would be Justin Ward and Kiese Lehman. And they are writing the end all be all <laughs> like um, to me, art brilliance, like sheer brilliance. And so I think it's there. I think, but, but you're right about the independent publishing. Cause I mean, I was eventually, this is an independent press. So, I mean, I still have the same agent, but um I think that I, I don't want to speak for an industry, but I feel like it's I, I, it's so unfair to speak for an industry, but it feels healthy. Like in that there are lots of places I looked, right? Like, and I hope it stays healthy. I hope they make enough money to keep going. Um, maybe they're not healthy. I don't know. I just got sad a little bit, but it's like rainy in Massachusetts and we all have our day jobs, I guess. Um, but, oh, I, I think I know what I wanted to say but when you're talking about, you started with this story that was like about a relationship, right? 
but then you layered on and layered on and layered on and layered on. And next thing you're talking about like South as a portal and like all that, like to me, that's like what Justin Ward, Cassie Lehman, I'm just starting to read like David Joy, but like, or, you know, Jill McCorkle is a North Carolina writer that I followed when I was really young. Like I was loved her when I was 13. They tend to do that. Right. It's like complex work. Like it's like, it's not, it's not talking about, it's talking about, it's like the story of, I don't know. It's operating on so many levels. So maybe that's a characteristic. Maybe I need to teach a new Southern literature class of some kind. I'm, I'm sure people are already doing this. That's what I am getting okay, a graduate you do degree. You do that. I want my life thing is I want to teach a class in like Southern Gothic environmental fiction. And no, I don't think anyone is doing that. If anyone is doing that, please reach out to me and let me know because I want to collaborate and team up with you. But that is what I am back in graduate school. I just want to send you books. I want to now brainstorm things to go on your canon spread. Please do. And if anyone has recommendations, like please send them to me. I do teach, I teach a course right now and we talk a lot about storytelling, but I have a lot of students who will come to my office hours and say, I'm really interested in the Southern Gothic. You know, I love Ethel Kane. I love like what Beyonce did with Lemonade. Um, Adia Victoria is another person I think of all the time. And they're like, I want to know more about this. And I'll give them the exhaustive list that I've I've put together in my research, but I would love to know more. So please send them my way. And I know we're coming up on our time. I think where we are is publish what you want, write what you want. And you have to just trust that like it will find its audience and its readers. I had a story come out last year um, with the Saints and Saints and Centers Literary Festival, which is run through the New Orleans, oh, yeah. Tennessee Williams yeah. Festival. I've been there. It's a great, they're awesome. Um, and I, it's in their 2023 anthology, which I have sitting right here, but it was a piece set in Eastern North Carolina um, about a giant wave that floods the coast and this queer couple who gets trapped in their apartment. And I, I wrote it in a matter of like three days. And I was like, this is a very weird, very like esoteric kind of story. I sent it to Vic and I was like, I don't think I can ever publish this anywhere. And I, I had a similar thing again. I sent it out to a lot of people. People were like, I love this story. We have no audience for this. And then eventually it found its home um, with Saints and Sinners. And so there's always, I think, an audience in a market. And sometimes you just have to pursue what you're interested in. We always say on this podcast, you know, follow your obsessions and just, there is, I think there are readers for these stories and there are audiences for everything. And the more time I spend in academia, the more I realize like, yes, everyone is just following their like niche little obsessions and there's space for that. So my hope is that we can make more space for that for Southern artists and see that, see that come to happen. But I know where I promised you an hour. Um, we do end the podcast and you're welcome to respond to any of that before we get into this, but we do always end with one final question for our listeners. And I know if you've listened to the podcast, you will know this. And I, I will let you take it any way you would like. Um, I am always so interested to hear what everyone has to say in the ways in which these answers overlap. But that question is, what do you believe in? Um, I believe really deeply in people. And it might take a while figuring out what it is they want to do. Like really deeply. So in my job as a college professor, probably the best part of my job is moving people towards, okay, but, but, but if, if it wasn't for your parents, if, it, if money was no object, what would you do? Like, what is it you really want to do? And like that moment when some, when a student's like, well, what I really want to do is fill in the blank. And then I think it's like, when you're talking about the work, like, um, I don't think we always know, like, I think it's a process. So I guess what I, yeah, what I'm really about or believe in is just like letting, letting people figure out what their process is, including myself, like, on what is it you're about? What is it you want to do? And then trying to make sure that they have the resources or the confidence to follow it, especially when there's no resources. And I remembered the person, it's Nan Golden, is the photographer. And like, again, I'm not a student of photography or anything, but that documentary, All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, 
um, by Laura Poitras, I think is the director of that, um, is about Nan Golden's like, she's, I feel guilty now because I'm not talking about someone who's Southern, but we'll do it anyway. (laughs) But she, it's basically about her as a photographer and her personal journey, her personal life, how that informed her work how her work was rejected by the New York art world, partly because she was a woman, because she was um, shooting queer people, people during the AIDS crisis, um, and just how she, like, over time, it took forever. Like, she just kept going. And you have to watch that documentary only because she's such a badass. She's sort of like, yeah, no, this is what I'm doing. And then she takes down the Sacklers. So, you know, and Purdue Pharma. So may we all find our paths to doing that kind of beautiful art that, like, dismantles bad things. That's what I'm about. <laughs> I think that's a perfect note to end on. And what a thing to be about, you know, follow your obsessions, see where they lead you and and trust that things will happen in their own time and buy Sarah's book. Everybody read it. If you have not, it's, it's beautiful and it's wonderful. Um, it is called Down Here We Come Up. It is out for release from Black Lawrence Press. And if you are in the Northeast, go check out Sarah on book tour and yeah, I'm so excited to read your. I'll be back in the south. Yes, come back to the south. We're gonna we're gonna team up. I'm gonna be at the Lexington Book Festival. We will be teaching some sort of Southern Gothic lit class down the line. You know, Ooh, it'll yes. happen. Yeah, I can't wait. We, we'll find ways to collaborate and team up. I love all of that. But yes, everyone, follow Sarah. Stay in touch. And thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for being here and for writing this. And it's just so exciting to see the tides start to shift a little bit and, and get more literature about this place. So thank you. I'm, I'm excited to see where you go. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being here. And to all of you listening, welcome to season three of Good Folk, wherever you are in the world. Have a good day. Good night. Be good. Stay good.